Well, good morning, everybody. I feel like we've already been through the whole, <laughs> the whole deal already. I'm like, all right, time for lunch. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, brothers. Thank you, Pastor Matt, for uh, leading us in communion. Um, man, I feel like I don't have all that much to add. I might be sounding a little repetitive here, but that's all right. We need to uh, have repetition in our lives. It's good for us. So thank you, brothers. Thank you, Pastor Aaron, for catching us up on the bridge. Um, if you guys haven't got to know the brothers that are in the house, I highly encourage you to. These guys are awesome, and uh, the Lord is just doing amazing things in their lives and through their lives. Amen? For those of you guys who, who do know them, they're awesome guys, and uh, it's all glory to God. He does what he wants with whom he wants, and he makes beautiful things out of things that are uh, just filthy, and we'll get into that. It's quite fitting that we, <laughs> not you guys in particular, I'm just saying, that's all of us. I didn't even look over there, um, myself included. Um, so yeah, it's quite fitting that Pastor Rob was mentioning uh, giving as, as a form of worship, because worship is going to be uh, a very big part of our text today. We're going to be in John 4. I will be finishing Jesus's conversation with the Samaritan woman, we'll pick up in verse 15 today. John 4, not 1 John 4, not 4th John 1, John 4. I know there's a lot of guests here today, I see all your faces. Don't feel the burden of uh, sticking a check in the box on your way out, we're glad that you're here. And uh, we're grateful that you've come to, uh, to fellowship with us, so do not feel obligation. Give to your home church, wherever that may be, and uh, enjoy some coffee on us. Praise God. Let's uh, pray before we begin. Father, thank you for gathering your body here today. God, what a joy and a privilege it is to come before you and to partake of the Lord's table. God, to remember the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you that you have, Lord, shed your blood, that your body was broken for us. and We sit now perfect, precious, and holy in your sight because we've been made new through him. We rejoice in that this morning. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you have preserved it for us, that you've given it to us, that your Holy Spirit uh, brings it to life for us, God. Would you please speak to us mightily and, and powerfully this morning? God, would you encourage us in Christ for your glory and for his name? Amen. Amen. So we're continuing this morning our conversation with the Samaritan woman as the Apostle John, the writer of this book, at least the human writer of this book, continues to accomplish his goal, which I'm just going to repeat for us every single time, because again, repetition is great, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. That is John's purpose for writing, and it's crucial for us to keep this in mind always when we're reading, because purpose and context are everything. They help us make sense of what's going on in any part of the story, particularly when we've got interactions and dialogue 
like this? What are we to keep our eyes on? What are we to be seeing? So John, being carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing, is intentionally highlighting these points of Jesus' life and ministry to make the Son of God, the Christ Jesus, known to his readers. That is what he's seeking to accomplish. And this fact, praise God, John gives us a purpose statement. you got to love when you have a purpose statement because it helps you navigate your way through the story. This helps us uh, keep from getting lost in the woods, so to speak. When we're reading through the gospel accounts, it is so easy to get sidetracked by every single tree, sidetracked by every single little detail, and kind of miss the point of what we're reading. So you guys may or may not be familiar with how the rest of this conversation goes. Um, He goes on to to tell this woman, you know, I, I know you're not married. You've had five husbands, and now you're living with a guy who's not your husband, right? This text is not about marriage. So it would be easy for us to just go into a a bizarre teaching on marriage and how, you know, faithfulness and not getting divorced. These are things that we already know, right? He's having this conversation to get to a point. And so John's purpose helps us stay focused on what's going on. We know that this encounter should ultimately serve to show us Christ. Amen? Ultimately, particularly in today's passage, in the context of worship. Now, again, this may sound Overly simplistic, but I assure you guys, there is nothing we need more than to see him as he is. See him as he is. And not just in the beginning when we call out to him to save us, right? We don't just need Jesus then, the gospel is our foot in the door, and then we just need to be told what to do from then on out. We need to see him every passing day as he is. We need to see Jesus Christ. I don't know if you guys know this song. It's called All I Have is Christ. It's a wonderful song. And so the chorus goes, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. He is our lives. He is the life that sustains us. And in eternity, the deciding factor will be, as Pastor Rob often questions, what have we done with Christ. That is all that's going to make the difference. What have we done with Christ? What have we done with the Son of God? And John directly links Jesus' identity with life itself. And so we had better be sure that we have the right Savior. We better be sure we have the right Jesus and we see him as he is. And he rightfully ought to have our full attention. Amen? All right. And this brings up another uh, important concept before we get into our text, and that is the knowability of God, the knowability of God. John's purpose in writing is that we may know, and that sounds kind of obvious, but in some cases it's very much not obvious. John's purpose in writing is that we may know who Jesus is, that we may know eternal life through him. In his epistle in 1 John, the apostle makes a very similar purpose statement in his introduction to that letter. He says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He goes on to say, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God 
and eternal life. This is everything to us, guys. Everything else pales in comparison to the importance and the worth and the privilege of knowing Christ. Knowing him, believing in him, receiving life through him, and knowing that we have life in him. Especially today, as you guys know, uh, in, our, in our culture, in our context, where there are large groups of people that say that we can't really know anything. We can't know anything. Everybody is just doing their best to figure out what works for them, and we're all going to make it in the end, right? Everybody's just doing their thing. Whatever works for you, works for you. Well, our text today makes it pretty clear that this is not the case. We must have truth. We must know. More than anything, we need to know Jesus, and that's exactly what he's going to graciously do for this Samaritan woman in our text today. He's going to make himself known to her through this providential conversation at the well, this conversation that Jesus said, I must go through here and I must speak with this woman. And this conversation today takes an interesting turn to the topic of worship. So to connect us to last week, you remember Jesus was speaking of the living water that he is able to give that will satisfy thirst forever, referring to the new life and the promised Holy Spirit dwelling within believers, the third person of the Trinity, regenerating and living within and empowering the people of God, which very much ties into the rest of this interaction. So don't forget what happened last week. If you weren't here, please go back and listen to last week's sermon. It'll help make sense of today. And Jesus uses the metaphor of water to illustrate a spiritual reality, as he often does, right? He uses earthly things to communicate spiritual things, water, bread, so on and so forth, just like we did today with communion, wine, representing his blood, right? He uses metaphor, but as is also commonly the case, she just does not get it, right? Uh, if, he, if we had these same interactions with him, we would have been like, yeah, so I'm pretty thirsty, you know? Uh, <laughs> can I have a cup? Like, what, what's going on here? She doesn't get it, and she takes his words literally. We see in verse 15 how she responds to his last statement. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again, and that water will become a spring welling up to eternal life. So what does she say to all this glorious truth that he's given her? Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's like, this sounds great. I'm sick of coming out here with my bucket. Let's do it. You have a water that's going to satisfy my thirst. I'm in, you know. Let's, let's have some of it. And so I couldn't pass up this opportunity to speak briefly on taking things literally. If you have ever engaged in conversation about the Bible, you have probably encountered this age-old and famous question, well, do you take the Bible literally, right? Has anybody ever heard this before? You guys take the Bible literally at that church you go to? Do you take the Bible literally? Well, to be fair, it's an odd question, and it's not one that we can just give a blanket yes or no answer to. The Scripture presents many things as literal history, yes, and many things in figurative language. So we believe that the Bible is to be taken literally insofar as it's meant to be, right? When Jesus said, scoop your eyeball out, 
right? There are some guys that think, oh, well, Jesus meant what he said. I take the Bible literally. If my eye causes me to sin, bam, it's gone. If my hand causes me to sin, I'll cut it off. Well, guess what? The sin nature is still in you, yes? You can't cut off your eye or, or cut out your eye and think that the other eye is still not going to lust after everything that it sees. So we take the Bible literally in so much as it's meant to be taken literally. And so we see here, we're, we're looking at a literal conversation, right? A conversation that actually took place between Jesus and this woman, that he meant something symbolically that she took literally. Just like our friend Nicodemus did in John 3, when Jesus told him, you must be born again, right? Immediately he's thinking, I took anatomy in uh, freshman year of high school, and that, um, it just doesn't work that way. What are you talking about? They're taking him literally when he doesn't mean to be taken literally. But notice how Jesus now responds to her. He doesn't start up a PowerPoint presentation about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't start educating her more and more on these things. He actually uses this opportunity where she misunderstands to go deeper into the woman's true thirst. She is a thirsty lady in more ways than one. And he puts his finger on the thing that she has been trying in vain to satisfy herself with so that when he presents the promise of true satisfaction, it will be real to her. He makes her aware of what she needs to know her sin, to know that she needs a Savior, and to know that he is that Savior. So verse 16, this is his response. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus takes this conversation in an entirely different direction, and it's very clearly not one that this woman wants to sit at the well and have a chat about. She doesn't know who she's talking to. She doesn't know that she's face-to-face -face with the discerner and knower of hearts himself. So, naturally, she gives the shortest, least detailed, but still honest answer possible. As I'm sure many of us would have done sitting across from a stranger getting a drink, right? Hey, you've been married five times, and now you're living with a guy out of marriage. It's like, uh, okay, this is a little awkward. Uh, yeah, I'm not married. I have no husband, right? You're not going to divulge all these details. I mean, <laughs> most people wouldn't. Some of you guys have just no social awareness, but that's okay. okay. <laughs> God, God is gracious. You know, he, he meets us where we are. Some of us are kind of quirky like that, and that's all good. Uh, but generally speaking, if someone says, hey, go grab your husband, you're not going to be like, well, I've actually been married five times, and right now I'm actually living with this guy, but we're not married, but we have this thing going on, right? It's just weird. So you wouldn't do that generally speaking. So the Lord here reveals his omniscience to her by giving a detailed account of her life, information that he could not have otherwise known. He's a stranger. We know from verse 39 of this chapter that she goes into her village after this and tells everyone about this encounter. And she says of Jesus, he told me all that I ever did, right? He knew everything that I've ever did. So this clearly was information he couldn't have otherwise known, and she now realizes that she's not just engaging with some regular old passerby. There is something 
different about this individual. Now, as bizarre as this is, I find this particular passage, verses 16, 17, 18, to be deeply encouraging, deeply encouraging to my soul that the one who knows all, the one who knows all, the one who knows every sinful hidden secret that we don't just divulge to people, the things that we keep hidden, the peasant, the, not the peasant, the past, the present, and the future. He knows the very depth of our wickedness. He knows our schemes and our lusts and every single way that we've broken his law and every way in which we will continue to do so. And yet, in spite of that, the sinless Son of God took on mortal flesh and came into this world to pursue us. He came to pursue us, to seek and save the lost, amen? To give life and to give it abundantly to those who could never get it for themselves. When we were very much like this Samaritan woman, unfaithful, outcast, alone, living in sin, following the pleasures and fleeting satisfactions of the flesh, he said, I want you. I want you. I will take you for myself, and I will make you new. He loved us at the height of our sin. He loved us at our absolute worst. He laid down his perfect life in the place of filthy humanity. And his omniscience doesn't end the moment that he saves us. He doesn't stop knowing everything about us. It's not like he all of a sudden just switches that part of his deity off. He still knows what is in our hearts right now in this very moment. And so often I hear people say with great confidence, God knows my heart. And <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, he does. He does know your heart and he knows that it is so much worse in there, as Pastor Rob always says, than we could ever comprehend. He knows my heart. He knows when I have good intentions, and he knows that the majority of the time, I don't. He knows oftentimes I'm doing things because it's my duty, it's my obligation, because I want to be seen, because I want praise from people, whatever it is. He knows. He knows our hearts. He knows that the only things that are good in there are because he has made us new. And yet, he calls us his beloved children. If he loved you when you were in adultery, scouting out your potential sixth spouse, if he loved you as the village reject, as the outcast, as the one that nobody wants, that no one wants to even be around, no one wants to go with you to do these normal tasks because they don't even want to be seen with you, they don't want to be associated with you, if he loved you in that state, his love will endure. His love will not run out. His love will go on forever. He knows all. We can't hide anything from him. And he graciously makes our sin known to us. As he does for this woman, his spirit convicts. His word declares you are not good. You are not good. You need me. You need what I have to offer. You need the gift of God. And if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask for this gift and I would give it freely. Amen? He gives himself freely 
to those who are altogether unworthy of him. And so this woman has been confronted with her sin, and praise God, she's actually going to confess. However shocking and uncomfortable this must have been, right? When light exposes dark things, what does the darkness do? When you shine a light on a cockroach, what does it do? Get out of there. Get back to some dark corner where you can hide, right? Our natural tendency is to hide, to cover up, to bury our sin. So in her response, one of two things is happening. Jesus says, yes, I know you're not married, and right now you're living with another guy unmarried. And she now pivots the conversation to the topic of worship, right? She's like, okay, let's talk theology. So either one, she's wanting to dodge the sin conversation entirely and change the subject. So she brings up this idea of worship. Or two, she recognizes her sin and she recognizes that Jesus is a Jewish prophet, and she truly wants to know in light of that where or how to worship God. I'm inclined to think it's the second, but we do not know for sure. But verse 19, this is her response. Again, remember what he's just said. He's just called her out on her hidden sin. So she says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, right? She says, verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she confesses, however subtly, she acknowledges that he knows these things about her, and she doesn't deny that they're true, and that he must have received this information supernaturally, so he must be a prophet. And she poses this, it's not exactly a question, but it implies the question she says, you Jews, you guys worship over there in Jerusalem, and we worship over here. You have your temple, we have our temple. What's the deal? What does God desire from us? If you want more info on the Samaritans, again, please just go watch last week's sermon. I'm not going to go over all that again. But her question is, where should we worship? So take a look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So remember, when we're reading through the Gospels, when we're reading through the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, he comes onto the scene to usher in a new covenant. He is bringing something new. He is bringing something greater to the people of God. He comes to fulfill. He comes to accomplish his mission that the Father has given him. And so there is this transition taking place between the old and the new as Jesus presents himself as the long-awaited Savior. He comes to Israel, and he is revealed to be the preeminent one. He is revealed to be the center, the focal point in creation, John 1, in salvation, John 3, in worship, John 4. He has come to fulfill the law. He's come to fulfill the prophets, the Old Testament writings. And in doing so, he transforms the way in which his people, his sheep, relate to God. 
And so he tells her, the time is coming when where you worship will no longer be the question of importance, but in what manner and through what means. And again, the subject of knowledge comes up. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So one of the main things that distinguished the Samaritans from the Jews, again, apart from all the other things that were mentioned last week, was that they only embraced the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, as the word of God. And so they were without a complete Old Testament revelation, so to speak, and that revealed that it was indeed in Jerusalem that was the correct place to worship at the time. So yes, the Jews did have it right. You are supposed to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And the Old Testament revelation that they had was incomplete and contained many more specific prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah. So Jesus maintains a distinction here. The Jews, not the Samaritans, were entrusted with the oracles and the promises of God. And it was through the Jews specifically that the Messiah would come. And so indeed, salvation is from the Jews. But I think this is very helpful for us. Because you see, Jesus does not compromise in any way on the truth of God's written word. He says, you guys worship what you don't know. Now that seems pretty harsh, right? It's like, oh man. You guys don't even know what you're worshiping. But at the same time, he graciously reveals himself to a Samaritan woman who would have been, in this historical setting, seen as the least likely person in the world for him to have this one-on-one personal dialogue with. And in verse 23, he makes clear that a new way of worship is being brought to light through himself. He says, the hour is coming and is now here, where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He says the Father is seeking such people to worship him, and he declares that God is spirit and thus must be worshiped accordingly. That is the main portion of our passage today, worship in spirit and truth. And this is a famous statement from our Lord and one that can be confusing and one that we will unpack together beginning with spirit. So spirit. The woman, remember, asked him about location. Where are we to do our worshiping? Which implies that they went to a certain place, right, to perform certain acts as their worship. And this is very much the case. Worship in this time for both Jews and Samaritans consisted much of sacrifices and rituals and feasts and temple activities performed through the priesthood in the temple, which, as we know, now through New Testament revelation, were all types and shadows of what, or rather who, was to come, yes? Worshippers had been looking forward to the one who would come and fulfill the worship system. And every part of Israel's worship is meant to point to the very events that we are now seeing unfold in John's gospel as Jesus becomes the way for a new kind of worship. Worship that will no longer be centralized in a certain place nor through certain ritual means, but rather in spirit. 
see the physical temple in Jerusalem, the place to go and worship, is passing away. We know this. Both the temple in Samaria, the one that she's referring to, and the temple in Jerusalem are soon to be destroyed. They're soon to be ransacked and destroyed. But as believers, as true worshipers come to their Savior, as they come to the Messiah, and he gives, him, he gives them this living water that he's spoken of, the new birth, regeneration, new life, the Spirit of God to come and dwell within them. Paul says, both in 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 2, that the church is now the temple of God. That if you are in Christ, you are God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in you. And we collectively make up His body, His holy temple, His dwelling place. Isn't that incredible? No? Maybe? (laughs) That... We, sinful, fallen human beings, are the temple of the living God. We are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. He is pleased to live within a people, us, the church, his body. The Spirit of God brings the presence of God within. This is one of the greatest realities of the Christian life, the, the, the indwelling Spirit, the living water, the presence of God within. So the unbeliever looks within to find God, and he cannot be found because God is without. Our sin separates us from him by nature. There is nothing good to be found within. And the world tells us to look within. Everything you need is inside of you. And when we look inside, what do we find? Wretchedness, deceitfulness, depravity. Everything that the Bible tells us about humanity is found within, but the one who knows that he needs a Savior that is outside of himself and receives the Son, receives the gift of God, that person also has the Father and the Spirit, we're told. And since God is Spirit in his very nature, he is omnipresent. He is omniscient, he knows all, and he is omnipresent, he is everywhere. He is not contained in a temple on a hilltop. He is not bound to this place or that place. He is now ever-present among his people. His dwelling place is with us, with his children, with his redeemed, with his beloved. And if he lives inside of us, we are able to worship him now, not with ritual Not with temple sacrifices, not only at this location or that location, only at this time and under these circumstances and through this guy. Not only conforming the outside to various ceremonies and rituals, but from the new heart with our very lives, we now worship the living God. We are told to glorify him in all that we do as he works within us by his spirit for his good pleasure. Now our lives in the body of Christ, when we gather together, our lives have become our spiritual worship. As we are renewed in our minds through his word, as we serve one another with our gifts, as we love each other as brother and sister, as we bless and rejoice and pray and give and sing together and praise his graciousness, 
This is now our worship. We worship in, in spirit. Praise God. Through Christ, we are told, we have access in one spirit to the Father. We no longer have need of a priest to mediate for us, to stand between us and God, to offer sacrifices for us, to make atonement for us, because Jesus has done it all. And he lives forever as our great high priest, having made one perfect sacrifice for all time, for all who would come to him. There is now one mediator between man and God, the God-man, Christ Jesus, who has fulfilled all the ritual worship required by God's law and given himself as the final sin offering, finally pleasing, finally full, finally um, fulfilling everything that God desires. And now through him, God has become accessible. He has become near. He has become ever-present. And we have the privilege of knowing and worshiping him as such because we are no longer separated by sin. Praise God. We are no longer bound by law. We are no longer enslaved to sin, and so we are able to worship God in spirit, no longer according to the letter, but according to the spirit, according to the freedom that is in Christ Jesus and according to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is wonderful, amen? Amen. amen. Which brings us to the topic of truth. This is the second element of worship in the new covenant. And the last two verses of our text. Verse 25, read with me. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So despite her sinful life, we see that this woman is indeed trusting in the promise of God. She is awaiting the coming Messiah. She is awaiting the Christ and she is awaiting the revelation that will come through him. She says when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all things. Now remember, according to history, she believes this based on the law alone, on the first five books, the books of Moses. Aside from the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, which become even more abundantly clear in detail who the Messiah will be, where he will be born, all of these things it's clear even from Moses all the way back to the writing of Genesis that God was going to provide a savior for his people. One who would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3. One who would be a blessing to all nations of the earth, who would undo the curse that was brought upon creation at the fall, Genesis 22. Who would be a prophet and king over all the earth, Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 18. The anticipation of this individual has been growing for over a thousand years since Moses penned Genesis. And of course, those to whom the promises were given, we go back even farther and farther and farther. And now that Messiah, that Savior, that God in human flesh is speaking face to face with this woman. And he tells her, I am. I am. The word he is not found in the Greek manuscripts, fun fact. 
And so we find this repeated phrase from Jesus throughout the book of John, I am. The one who you speak of, I am. These I am statements are some of his most direct and powerful claims to deity and majesty and glory. And few are as straightforward as this. She says, we know that the Messiah is coming. And he says, the one you're waiting for, I am. And this, this is the center of the truth that he is referring to when he says, now true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. You guys remember John 1? John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And again, John 1.17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. True worshipers of God must worship him according to the truth of his word, namely the truth concerning his son, the word made flesh, God incarnate, the physical embodiment of God's character, the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. Ken Jones puts it this way. He, Jesus, is the gift of God through whom acceptable worship is offered and received by the Father. He is the gift. He is the mediator. Outside of the truth of Jesus Christ, we cannot know God. We cannot come to God. We cannot worship God. But in him we have bold access and confidence because of his fulfillment, because of his work, because of his perfect life, because of his substitutionary death, because he died and rose again, and because he gives the Spirit of God to live inside his people, we can know our Father, and we can draw near to him through Christ. I love what Pastor Rob said last week about identity. Identity is crucial in the Christian life. It is crucial to the Christian that we be oft reminded of our identity. And I think the topic of identity is just as relevant and applicable here because we find, again, our identity in so many other things. Not only the things that we like to do, right? I like sports. I like, you know, weightlifting. I'm this, I'm a, I'm a conservative, I'm whatever, I'm pro-life. Some of these things are great, some of these things are neutral, whatever. We characterize by all these other things, and often we find our identity in what we are not in opposed to what we are. We find our identity in what we don't do, right? I don't go here, I don't go this, I'm anti this, I'm opposed to this, I don't participate in this, Right? I raise my sign against this and this and this. That's who I am. I'm a person who's against this. I'm a person who's against that. We don't want to characterize ourselves by what we're against, but by what we are for, by who we are for. Our identity is so much greater than what we are not. 
You are so much more than not this and not that. You are so much more than opposed to this and opposed to that. If you are in Christ, your identity is bound up in who he is. Your identity is no longer like this Samaritan woman, bound up in where you go to worship or what rituals you perform or what sins you've committed or what sins you are currently struggling with or even your ethnic heritage. That is no longer who you are. Now your identity is in the object of your worship. Namely, your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? That is our identity. We are worshipers of the Lord Jesus at our very core. That is who we are. That is what we are. That is what we have been made to do. The one who has made you alive, who has given you his spirit, who has given you truth, you belong to him. You were bought with the highest price. And so who he is must be the center of all of our worship. Corporate worship, public worship, our gathering, it must be centered on who Jesus Christ is, what he has done. In our homes, in our homes, our family worship, you men who are leading your families, we must lead our homes according to who Christ is. In our private life, our worship must be according to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and who he is everywhere we go. Our lives are now a spiritual offering to him as we bring him glory for who he is and what he's done everywhere we go, every interaction that we have the forefront of our minds is the Son of God. Amen? The way, the life, the all-sufficient Savior is the truth in which we, we worship the living God, giving thanks to him for his wondrous works on behalf of his church, and there is no other way. God does not accept worship apart from Jesus Christ. It says, whoever does not have the Son does not have the Father. And friends, this is a most unwelcome truth in our world. Because truth is, by nature, exclusive. And exclusivity is offensive. If one thing is true, I'm going to take you guys into a little math lesson here. If one thing is true, one thing, that means the infinite number of other possibilities are necessarily what? False, right? If one thing is true, then every other thing that is not that thing is therefore false. Two plus two can only be four, right? It cannot be something else. That's right. Brother James in the back. Four. Truth is narrow and truth is limited. And it is offensive in a world where the idea of communing with God, the idea of worshiping God or some kind of God or some kind of higher power or some universal force is quite prevalent and it's held quite personally, yes? Where the concept of God is often used in conversation. I believe in God. Just cool it with the Jesus stuff, right? I have my understanding of God. You have your understanding of God. 
Stay out of my business. You worship who you think God is. I'll worship who I think God is. But this God is unknown. This God is foreign. This God is man-made. This God is a God of imagination. It is a God known and worshipped apart from the truth. So he cannot be a true God. Truth is exclusive. Truth is narrow. And Jesus says, I am the truth. And therefore, all other truths cannot be the truth necessarily. We must worship according to truth. Worship must be, in its essence, according to truth, which means it is by nature exclusive, it is narrow, it is limited. There is an exclusive group of people who are able to worship the true God. And these so-called gods, whatever names they go by, even those that use the same language as we do, right? We don't pick on specific folks all that often, but um, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, even Jews, even our Jewish friends, worship what they do not know because the God that they worship is not known according to truth. The truth is in Jesus Christ alone. Any other God is a false idol. The true God is he who tells the end from the beginning. Amen? The true God. The true God created nothing, created out of nothing, and upholds everything by the word of his power. The true God formed the world and everything in it. The true God is the one who was and is and is to come, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The true God exists eternally as perfect triune Godhead and sent the Son to become a man and die in the place of sinners according to his eternal plan in his written revelation. That's a mouthful, but that is the true God. This is the truth in which we must worship. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Those who truly worship God must worship him according to who he has revealed himself to be. And he has revealed himself to be glorious, amen? He has revealed himself to be merciful and gracious and patient and kind and sacrificial. He has revealed himself to be the one who is worthy of worship. And he alone is worthy of worship, amen? In spirit and in truth, we must worship this God, the true God. And in spirit and in truth, we have the privilege of worshiping the true God. We have the privilege of knowing the true God. And for those of you who do know him, remember, oh man, oh woman, that this is not our own doing, lest we should boast. May we never boast in our worthiness to worship, in our ascertaining of the knowledge of the true God. May we remove ourselves from the conversation altogether and boast in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. He is worthy of worship. It is not by our own merit, our own intellect, or our own worthiness that we call upon the true God through his Son, but by his glorious, unfathomable grace alone that we know him. It is by grace alone 
that we have been qualified to worship the Son through his redemption, to worship the Father through the Son. By receiving the free gift that he gave in his perfect Son, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers him and he says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. If you sit in your seat today and you call upon God as father through Jesus Christ, blessed are you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God, the Father who is in heaven, has revealed the Son to you. He has drawn you to himself through his gracious will. It is God's doing. The Samaritan woman didn't do anything but accept. She didn't get anything that he was saying. She was completely lost. No clue. Yes, I'll take the water. Sounds good. Right? Which mountain should we worship on? She has no idea what's going on. All these people that Jesus interacts with and he comes with these glorious truths that they've been awaiting for all this time. He comes and he, he tells it to them plainly or, or in, in uh, symbolic language and they're just like, Whew. nothing. Lights are on, nobody's home. He went to her, he engaged her, he revealed himself to her, and he initiated the saving relationship, and he provides all the means necessary to come and drink of the living water. Amen? Amen. If you do not know him, if you are still worshiping a God of your own making, a God that cannot be a true God, because there can only be one, and if your God is like you, I guarantee you, he is not the true God. This God can be known. That is the wonderful thing about the scriptures. That's the wonderful thing about John's gospel. He's giving us things so that he can be known. He has given us the testimony of the entire scripture. That's what a testimony does. It attests to something. It is a testimony of something. What is the Bible a testimony of? It's a testimony of his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his goodness, his graciousness, his patience. Jesus' works from eternity past attest to this. God's plan from eternity past attests to this. His faithfulness to his word attests to this. We can trust Jesus Christ. Do not neglect this salvation that is in Christ, this great salvation. As Brother Matt said, do not harden your heart against him today. Turn to him and trust him to save you from your sin, and he will. You will, like this woman, keep seeking satisfaction for your thirst everywhere that you go, and you will never find it apart from him because we were made for him. We were made to know him. We were made to love him. We were made to worship and enjoy him. We were made to be satisfied in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, the gift of God. God gave his Son a people to come to him and receive eternal life, and he gave that people his Son, that by believing in him we may have life in his name and worship and enjoy him forever. Amen?
may we worship him in spirit and in truth this morning. Does that make sense? Yes. Praise God. I thought I lost myself there for a second. Let's pray, church. Lord, thank you that you have revealed these glorious truths to fools like us, God. Thank you for your glorious grace, Lord. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us through Jesus Christ that we know the Father, that we know eternal life, that we know peace, that we know wholeness, that we know life, that we know redemption, that we know everything that we need for life and godliness through him. We thank you, God, that you took a people who could not come to you, who could not know you, who could not worship you, and you made us alive, God. You made us qualified to worship. You have put your spirit within us by which we cry out to you as our Father, and you have given us truth embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, the promised one, the awaited one, the Savior. And now we behold him and we see you. We see your grace. We see your truth. And we rejoice this morning, Father. We rest in knowing that we know Christ, that we know eternal life through him, that we have life in his name, and we give you glory and honor and worship that you are so worthy of, God. And we ask for your forgiveness, Father, for every time that we have forgotten your glory, that we've forgotten your faithfulness, Father, and we've done things in our own way, according to our own wisdom, in our own strength, in our own rituals. We thank you for your mercy, God. We thank you that you've shown us a greater way, a new way to worship you from the heart with our lives through Jesus Christ, our great priest, our great mediator. We thank you, God, that you receive our worship, Father, that you're pleased with us and that you could be no more pleased with us than if we are in Christ Jesus, washed by his blood, made new and made perfect and clothed in his righteousness. We thank you that all of these things are ours in him and you have done this all yourself by your good pleasure for our good and for your glory. We lift up the name of Jesus this morning and we give you thanks in his name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go in peace.